Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. The Catch and Shoot podcast is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media. Catch and Shoot goes well with both red and white and is perfect with a workout of your choice. Our co-hosts are on both coasts and they have all of NBA Nation covered. Adam Stanko in the Bay Area and Noah Kozlov in the Big Apple. It's the Catch and Shoot podcast. I'm Noah Kozlov out on the East Coast. Adam, introduce yourself. I'm Adam Stanko on the West Coast. I I like how you said that, Noah. All right. (laughs) Adam. We I gotta we gotta start this week. We're gonna get to Sean Elliott, who's got his thirty-two retired by Arizona and San Antonio, and also make sure everybody listens to the Mike Wise show on Mondays. He had Jeff Van Gundy on this week, and Van Gundy told Jodie Foster's story among mm-hmm. other stories, mm-hmm. and buckets, boards, and blocks with Monica McNutt, and the Pure Hoop show with Eric Newman and B.J. Armstrong. But I gotta start with. NBA Twitter. Just the just the phrase NBA Twitter makes me cringe because I don't think it's that quote unquote cool. It actually it drives me nuts because when you're watching a game I'll glance at Twitter yeah, I'll run through it um, refresh it a few times during commercials but I'm, when I'm watching a game I don't want to be staring at what other people are saying because then you're actually missing the game. What's the point? Who is actually watching these games? Because then I go back and look on Twitter during a commercial and I see, oh, great hedge on this pick and roll. Like, what? What, what, is, what is happening here? And then, then there's a few who, and I'm not naming names here, but then there are a few who like, everything has to be some sort of joke. And then I'm wondering, people actually think this is funny? or interesting or like they want to spend time with this person because of their tweets it's it really is maddening like i always like you've got to add something you got to add something add something that's the critical point that's the critical point because noah the thing is it's it's hot takes a lot of times but multiplied to the whatever degree i mean i first night the nba season Mm -hmm. this year this season i tweeted we're not even a full night in and I'm already sick of NBA Twitter. And I was because the takes were coming in fast and furious and it, people just with these grandiose takes, the, the all time stuff. That's that's Ugh. what usually drives me crazy is where do you rank this person all time, Ugh. that person, um, which, of course, we'll get into some of a Hall of Fame debate in a little bit ourselves, uh, of course, because, you know, I'm hypocritical on some level. But. Look, if I'm making a joke, I'm going to make sure it's pretty funny. Um, you know, I, I recommend other people test it out. Maybe to send a text to your friends or something first. Um, and then and then there's the other side, which, as you bring up, like this basketball analysis. And don't even get me started on, you know, Scout with Brian, who I think is like the ultimate NBA Twitter guy, which has become its own story in itself. But the funny part about the tweet that I sent out, opening night, I send that tweet out, and somebody that I know – who will consider himself part of the NBA Twitter community sent me a response back 
and on a text with a whole bunch of other people basically questioning why I would write that as though he was offended as though even the idea of me saying that I'm annoyed by NBA Twitter somehow annoyed this person. And I was like shaking my head like this. That's, that's the new level of low and ego and meta, whatever you want to call it. It was just a weird moment in time. So I'm glad you brought that up because I've been annoyed by NBA Twitter all season. Well, before even the season. I have found found myself more over the past like two months. Yes. Typing something in to tweet, reading it, reading it again, and then deleting it. Like I, I, I want to send it, and then I think, all right, what's, let's just assess risk reward here. Yeah. Like what's the what's what's the point? And it's usually just calling somebody out or just crushing the person for like. You're good at that. You're good at that, though. I, I really want to. I really want to hear my voice come through in it, and because most of it, the you know, I'll write something that's you know semi intelligent, but really at the core of it is what the are you doing like, what's the point of what you just tweeted and also what also drives me insane is the if you're going to retweet something and then have a like a comment above it like this or this is great or something like why don't you then just retweet it like if you're oh. again if you're not going to add something oh, you know why you then know just why. retweet it of course you i know, know why. why yes and you know, no, it's funny that you, that you say that about calling people out, because the other thing about it is you're very blunt, I've found on Twitter, which I appreciate and I respect, and I don't think there's enough of, but you'll literally ask someone like, why do you have that opinion? And then they get offended that you'd ask them. But the thing is, they put out the tweet initially with this asinine statement or this commentary on the game, which is trying to invoke odd responses. Mm-hmm. And instead of you getting fired up, you're like, okay, why do you think that? And then they Wait, get like, I'm not going to say something on Twitter that I wouldn't say to this person's face. Of course. Everyone, everyone just constantly or, or always thinks that you're looking for confrontation. I'm not. I, I, most 98, 99% of the time, I'm looking for just for an explanation, not a confrontation. Yeah. <laughs> yes. We're curious by nature. Uh, yeah. All right, well, that's NBA Twitter. The season's almost over. But I actually have been enjoying watching these games, not looking at Twitter. Uh, yeah. Anyway, all right, we're going to have Sean Elliott in a moment, but first... Guys, explain this to me. Adam, explain this to me. This is one of the weirdest NBA finals that you can remember. Uh, Easily, easily, Noah. This is by far the strangest NBA finals that I can remember being a part of. I mean, this idea of a Warriors three-peat, put that to the side for a second here how about the fact that we've had so many odd injuries okay you've got nick nurse being a first year head coach in the nba finals an incredible path his story his journey is remarkable but he's in the nba finals it's not really talked about they've talked about some of his coaching moves but the fact that he's a first year guy coaching in the finals, which in itself is a rarity, but that was sort of blown away when obviously Steve Kerr was was having so much success doing it that way. But then, no, on top of that, we've got Kawhi, the hero, the darling for Toronto. And yet 
Kawhi is probably leaving the Raptors, and that's hanging over this whole thing. And then you've got Kevin Durant, who hasn't played in this series, mm-hmm. and his free agency is hanging over. Oh, and by the way, Boogie Cousins made his return, and he's been the odd man out in this whole Warriors thing, and that made him into a beyond unfair team and everything. I'm just I, – I cannot get over how many odd storylines there are throughout this playoffs. How do you, weird do you think this is? You know, it's really weird. It's really weird. All the subplots and, and that's what makes oftentimes the finals so great are these stories. But for anyone who thought that, well, because LeBron isn't in the finals and he'd been day traded, that the fact that LeBron isn't in the finals is going to bring these stories down and that we weren't going to have as many compelling storylines just couldn't even been more wrong. Because now we're going into game three with the clay injury. Yep. We've got a Kevon Looney injury that you really only see in football, not basketball. And that the Warriors were more fun to watch before, you know, when since Kevin Durant got hurt. But now it's, well, they could really use Kevin Durant now because Clay Thompson can be anywhere close. And then and then you mentioned you mentioned Kawhi and where you could have the best play in their series and you have no idea what he's thinking, where he's leaning, and what's going to happen once the series ends. And if the outcome of this series even has an impact on what he's going to do. When nobody knows, and we and I remember we talked about this before the finals or during or at some point during the playoffs, when nobody knows and everybody's frustrated about it, that's the best. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And by the way, Noah, you, you know, look, we mentioned NBA Twitter off the top. The other storyline is this Steph Curry's postseason legacy. And for some reason, if you go on Twitter, like either Steph Curry is the greatest player who's ever lived or this guy cannot be clutch and is terrible in the postseason and and terrible late in games. It, oh, like yeah. it's it's amazing. Like there's no in between. People pick a side and go to one extreme or the other, and then they defend it to the death. And so for no reason, all those for no uh, no, for no reason. No re- was- you know, it's also you know, it's also great is that the the Steph why why we love Steph that stuff's being rehashed and. I heard Eddie Johnson saying it on, on Sirius Radio the other, day, the other day, and it was as if, and I, and, I, and I really like Eddie, but it was as if Eddie was saying it for the, like it was the first time anybody had said it. It's like, well, you know, look at, he looks like one of us, or, you know, he looks like the <laughs> average guy. And I'm like, and, and so I always think, like when I hear, say, statements like that, you know, three years after everyone else has said them, or I've said them, whatever, I always think, are the listeners thinking the same thing that I am? Of course. Well, I don't, I don't know if they are. And then I think, well, if they're not, then should I just be saying the same thing every week? <laughs> oh, it's this vicious cycle in my head. All right, explain this to me. Andre Iguodala, <laughs> speaking of NBA Twitter, Andre Iguodala is a Hall of Famer. No. Andre Iguodala is not a Hall of Famer. Look, what would you, what, what would, how would they say it on Twitter? GTFO, <laughs> right? I think there's an H on the end of that too. Um, I learn all the uh, cool yeah, acronyms. Yeah, 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 right. Of course, H. Right, right. Out of here, out of yeah. here. Uh, I learn all the cool acronyms F from my uh, um, FML, 
uh, all of them through my through my state. They give me all the uh, great acronyms. I, um, Noah, just just tell me this. Like, so Andre Iguodala, very good player who's had a very good career. And my thing is, can't that be enough? Like, can a guy hit clutch shots? Can a guy be impactful throughout his career? Can a guy be? Yes, I admire the like like. There's okay. I don't even know if admiration is the right word. He went to the Warriors and took on a lesser role. But guess what? Because of it, he's won a ton of games, gotten a ton of attention. Uh, his brand has has increased. His reputation around the league has increased. Like, it wasn't a downside. There was People talk about this great sacrifice because you give up shots. Yeah, well, when you win, that sort of makes up for it. And by the way, I was going through a list. Is he better than Sidney Moncrief? Is he better than Tim Hardaway, Sean Kemp, Orlando Blackman? Alvin Robertson, Chris Weber, like, is he on that? We're talking about a guy with one all-star appearance in his career. He's never averaged over 20 points a game. You know who has averaged over 20 points a game in a season and has two all-star appearances in their career? Sean Elliott. Um, is Andre Iguodala better than Sean Elliott? Sean Elliott's not going to be in the Hall of Fame. Well, you, well, you better believe I'm going to ask him that, because, and especially since they're both Arizona guys. And if an Arizona guy doesn't stick up for another Arizona guy, you know he doesn't belong in the Hall of Fame. <laughs> right? That's hey, it's true. What do you but think, a, though? Yeah, I, he's not a Hall of Famer. And the Andre Iguodala, well, he finals MVPs, two-time all uh, Big enough, shots. Uh, enough, enough. Chris Webber was a, a five-time All-NBA guy. Okay? Ben Wallace, five-time All-NBA, four-time Defensive Player of the Year. Four-time defensive player of the year. Not, not in just, the Hall of Fame. Not, not just all defensive team. And, and Iguodala was first team once, second team once, and it was a four-time All-Star. It's it is it's preposterous. And and I don't and, and enough of the well, it's the Mitch Richmond Hall of Fame. All right, great. But that doesn't that doesn't mean just because we made a mistake with one guy, then everybody needs to get in. So if you you have to think of it in the will he get in or and should he be and should he get in. The will he get in is when you talk about the Mitch Richmond Hall of Fame. The should he get in is when you can actually have an intelligent conversation. And no, he should not be in the Hall of Fame. No, he, he shouldn't be in the Hall of Fame. Kyle Lowry has, what, five straight all-star appearances? If Toronto wins this series, oh, Kyle Lowry's oh, going to have a ring. I know, I know. Five straight oh, but, here's, but here's the thing, where this whole, again, this idea of chasing legacy and these super teams, this is, here's the other part. People talk about, well, Andre Iguodala has, has a finals MVP. Well, you know what? Andre Iguodala got that opportunity because he was playing with some other Hall of Famers. So he had the opportunity. Doesn't yeah, and, um, I, and I thought and I thought Steph should have been the MVP of that finals. Anyway. He should have been the MVP of that final. Doesn't Cedric Mats- Maxwell have an MVP uh, finals uh-huh. MVP? Yeah. So um, I'm sure our producer Bruce Bernstein immediately. Yep, he told us yes immediately. Um, he wanted to make sure we we got that right. Um, but but part of it is just opportunity. Yes, Andre Iguodala hit a huge shot the other night. But guess what? He got that opportunity because he plays on one of the greatest teams we've ever seen. So also, also, look, if he had if he had missed that shot, what, what are you saying there? The guy that you shouldn't be in the you shouldn't be in the NBA at his position if you can't make that shot. That's a, that's a good point. My goodness! They also left him wide open for a purpose. Like, do Hall of Famers get left wide open in critical situations no, late in games? They do not. Great. That point. might be our test. That might explain. Be explain this to me, Adam. Zion's a Hall of Famer already. <laughs> I mean, look, everyone's going to tell you that he that he is, 
Um, when we last spoke, Noah, I had talked to you about the fact that I had gone down and, and watched Don McLean's workouts and, you know, right. my Kobe, uh, Kobe White, Kobe White had just handed you the restraining order. Yeah, he, he basically said the attention that you've given me is is way too much. Your infatuation's <laughs> getting completely out of control. And but I missed out because in between the time that our last podcast was and this one, Zion signs with CAA, which means that he goes to work out with Don McLean. Now, obviously, it's not for team workouts, but, you know, to prepare him for summer league and get him ready for for the season and, and summer league and immediately have an impact on the league. Don is the preeminent workout guy in the off season uh, for, for NBA guys. And what was interesting was I asked Don, you know, of course, you know, how's it going? What does he think uh, of Zion? And first of all, he told me that Zion out jumped the vertical testing machine because, because CA wanted to run their own test. Cause obviously Zion's not going to test at the combine. They had to raise the machine that they had at, at their place of workouts by putting it on blocks. He had a 46-inch approach vert. Don said, insane. Never seen anything close 46 to 46-inch vert? And now keep in mind, he's had D'Angelo Russell, Carl Anthony Towns, Devin Booker, Donovan Mitchell, Jordan Bell. I mean, the list of athletes is crazy. He'd also be the second heaviest player in the NBA right now at 285 pounds behind Boban. So you're talking about the most freakish athlete. And the coolest thing about, about Zion being there, Don has these private workouts in a gym. And it's, it's, it's at a public place, but they kind of have the, the gym to themselves. Somebody that was at this public place where you can go, it used to be at a Bay Club. It's not there anymore. But somebody that was there working out, just a random person, went over to the window where the basketball was being played, took a picture of Zion and his sneakers, took some video, and sold it to DMZ. That's how crazy the really? phenomenon is. Yep. To see what kind of sneakers he was wearing, who he's going to sign with. Cool. Out of control. That's, so, wow. Hall of Fame, inches? I guess. Hall of Fame. That's Jordan. 46 inch. Yeah. It's, I, um, I was told by someone with one of the uh, NBA teams, I asked them about that, and they said that would tie the record for highest all time at the Combine. So second heaviest player in the NBA, best vertical in the NBA. Zion Williamson, welcome to the league. That was dope. Joining us now is Sean Elliott, the number three pick by the Spurs back in 1989, a two-time All-Star. He was a two-time Conference Player of the Year at Arizona, the 89 AP Player of the Year. He's the Arizona is the all-time leading scorer there. He's a NBA champion back in 1999 with the Spurs, spent 12 years in the league and was all-rookie second team back in 1990. Sean, but I want to start with Detroit, what memorabilia do you have from your time with the Pistons? <laughs> uh, that's funny. I, I may have, I think I may have one uh, sweatshirt, uh, maybe uh, one item, uh, not very much. I, you know, when I came back from Detroit, I had a few things, but I gave them to uh, most of my friends. And then over the years, I've had a few people that were Pistons fans uh, that I knew and, and I gave them the rest of it. So I may have one uh practice jersey and one sweatshirt <laughs> not not very much i wasn't there very long <laughs> no, no no you weren't and you, couldn't, and, you, and, you, and you couldn't wait to get out of there either well you know it just didn't fit me uh you know it just wasn't the right fit for me you know I'm a, I, I tell people jokingly that i'm an arizona guy and so you know my my winters were 
75 degrees. I mean, if it got to 40 in Tucson, the, the town was ready to shut down. It, it snowed one time in my life as a kid. And the, the winter that I was there in Detroit, it was the worst winter that they'd had in a decade. And the month of January and February, the highs every day were minus one or zero. And Ooh. so the, that for an Arizona kid, like people, like the, the guys on the team would always uh, give me a little bit of crap because we'd be running up and down the court practice and I was constantly blowing on my hands just to try to get some warmth in there. During practice? During practice, yeah. We had, a, we had one practice one time, I'll never forget, we were um, at some small gym uh, because, you know, it was, we didn't have practice facilities and stuff like that. And so we were constantly rotating uh, where we were practicing. And one place we went to uh, one, uh, one day had no heat. And so everybody was practicing in full sweats and even with their hoodies up on their sweatshirts. And I was like, I mean, this, to me, I mean, I couldn't catch a ball. Uh, I couldn't, you know, I was afraid my fingers were going to snap off. Is, it, is that the sweatshirt you still have? I don't think so. <laughs> uh, Sean, uh, this is Adam. So if we go back in time right now, we're, you know, in the midst of NBA pre-draft madness. And yeah. your pre-draft story is absolutely crazy, especially as it pertains to the Clippers and their organization at that time or their lack of an organization is probably more oh, yeah. apt. Um, yeah. You, so, you know, you had the, the, the knee brace in, in college and, and uh, you know, teams said they were scared off by that and all. Yeah. Can you take me through that, your, your pre-draft experience with the Clippers? Well, how'd you know about that? I'm, I'm really curious. Because so have I shared that? that story you shared it once. <laughs> I, I had a previous podcast that you, you spoke to me about, Sean, and, and uh, it was it really an incredible story. And Noah and I have, uh, have been basically amazed by this story and wanted other people to, to have a chance to hear it. Okay. So yeah, uh, really interesting. And you know, the, this is the old Clippers and they were run a little bit differently. And so uh, I had gone to Miami, uh, met with Billy Cunningham. He was uh, the president or general manager of the team. They were, uh, people were there to meet me at the airport. They're very nice and sat down, had a uh, good conversation with them talked to Sacramento on the phone, Bill Russell for a second, and the Clippers wanted to fly me out. Uh, they wanted to uh, sit down with me. So I arrive at the airport in LAX and I'm waiting, waiting. No one picks me up. Uh, so I call the Clippers and they're like, well, we, you know, you have to, there's a hotel there. You have to do your own thing. I, I didn't have a credit card. I was a senior in college. I had no money. I had to call Bob Wolf, my agent at the time. He arranged for me to, to get a hotel room that was at the airport and the Clippers uh, picked me up the next day. So I, you know, told them I wasn't working out for them and uh, beforehand, uh, but then when they picked me up, they still wanted me to work out. And I was, uh, I said, well, you know, I really can't do that. Uh, Bob Wolf doesn't want me to do that. I said, well, you know, at least we want to have a look at your knee. And so they took me in to get an MRI. And it's the first time I'd had an MRI of my knee. And, uh, you know, I'd torn my ACL as a freshman in high school, and I got it repaired, but uh, I had tweaked it a few times, and that's when the doctor finally decided to put me in a knee brace. And so uh, when I got this MRI done with the Clippers, I get back home uh, to Tucson, and a couple weeks later, 
the Clippers had faxed out, is maybe a couple of weeks before the draft, the Clippers had faxed out uh, a report to every team in the league basically saying that when they were looking at the MRI, they could see that I had no ACL, there was, you know, there was damage in my knee, and uh, it was like the suture to the staples were free. It was all kinds. It was just a really bad report. Um, and so so happens that um, Bob Wolf, my agent, got a hold of the report, and there was a radiology conference actually going on in Boston at the time. So he went down to the radiology conference, and apparently the number one guy uh, who, for MRIs was actually speaking uh, during uh, uh, during the seminar at the conference. After the seminar, Bob walked up to him and said, "Hey, I need, I need your help. I need uh, I have a client who just got an MRI done, and we need to verify this report." And so the doctor went to Bob Wolf's office, held up my MRI slides against the window of Bob's office and held up the report in his other hand. And he, as he read the report, he looked at the slides and he said, there's no way that they can see this, these pictures or they can come to this conclusion with the slides that I see. It was a completely bogus report. And so we had to put, we had to put our own report out and send them to the rest of the teams in the league. So everybody didn't think that I had this knee that was just, uh, you know, beyond repair. How's that legal? Well, you tell me. This is nineteen. This is nineteen eighty nine. So, you know, things were, you know, they were a lot different back then. And you know, that that was, you know, that's probably one of a thousand Clipper stories that people have out there. Did you know at the time, or did you find out pretty quickly after that, after you're in the league for a little bit, just how broken the Clippers were? Uh, yeah. I had I had guys that played. Uh, I had team. I had friends who played for them. Uh, Lloyd Vot. I became uh, pretty good friends with Lloyd, and he would tell me a few stories, and then you'd hear things that come out of there. You know, guys um, talk and they communicate with each other, and you know, I heard a lot of really bizarre stories, a lot of bizarre things that people haven't heard, and uh, you know, that was just to me. I guess that was par for the course after that. And one thing that's significant about that is. Sean, the remarkable part, a lot of times you'll hear teams doing dishonest, pulling dishonest moves or making strange claims yeah. or starting rumors in order to go up and draft a guy. But in that yeah, case, yeah, and that's a, yeah. <laughs> you go number three, are. they picked Danny Ferry at number two. Like they, they didn't yeah. even do it to draft you. Exactly. And, the, and Danny said he wasn't going to play for him, I believe, from the beginning. And they still drafted him. So that was just, uh, you know, <laughs> I, that one's still hard to figure out. Their loss. Let's. Uh, <laughs> I want to get into. I want to get into a little bit about the towards the beginning of your career. After Larry Brown, you end up with you know a few series of coaches, but one being Jerry Tarkanian, who had twenty games there in the the ninety two ninety three season. Yeah. What well, went wrong? What went wrong with Tark? Oh, uh, uh, <laughs> well, I, I tell you what, Tark, uh, I thought he was a great motivator and I, and I thought he was a, uh, a really good coach. Actually, I, I'll be honest with you. I, I think that what happened to Tark was, uh, you know, he just, uh, the San Antonio community maybe didn't embrace him and there were other things away from the court 
that cost him his job. I mean, he, we were 9 and 11. He was trying to figure things out at the time. Uh, you know, when Tark first got there, he, he didn't know how to call a 20-second timeout. You know, he, he was uh, trying to acclimate himself to the NBA game. And so, um, you know, we were trying to figure him out. And to give a guy 20 games isn't really uh, much time, especially a guy like Jerry Tarkanian. Uh, but I think there were other things, you know, maybe his personality uh, didn't fit right with, uh, you know, maybe some of the San Antonio front office or some of the San Antonio crowd, because I, I thought Tark was a, he was a great motivator. You know, I, I really enjoyed being around him. And, uh, you know, there was one time I, I can tell you, we were playing an exhibition game in New York. We were playing the Knicks. I want to say we were in Rochester or Albany. Uh, New York was, was such a long time ago, and the Knicks were staying at a better hotel than we were. And some of our guys uh, during shoot-around, they complained. They said, hey, you know, Coach, look at this place we're staying at. We're staying at this dump, and the Knicks are staying at this better hotel. And the guys were upset about that. And Tark just, you know, in his kind of uh, you know, soothing way, he was like, hey, you know, you guys live in San Antonio. It's a great place. There's no state tax. You know, these guys got to go back to New York and it's going to be tough and hustle. You know, uh, it's a rat race. And because you guys have it good. I mean, so what if you're spending one night or two nights <laughs> in a crappy hotel? You know, you're in a better situation. And he just, you know, soothed the whole situation, just calmed it over. And he had a way of doing that uh, that was really uncanny. But, you know, to me, I just think that he probably didn't get quite enough time. And, and, you know, the, the other thing about it is the, the NBA was kind of unforgiving because, you know, Tark had brought in a few of his guys from Vegas. He brought in Lloyd Daniels, who was really talented. He brought in a couple other guys like strength coach, you know, um, you know, guys that um, were really uh, just kind of different, I guess, to the San Antonio scene. And so I, I think a lot of people or uh, just people around the organization were just kind of averse to that. What's your best Lloyd Daniels story? Uh, oh, I, I tell you what, my best Lloyd Daniels story is I had a little get together at my house and Lloyd came over and I had a pool table in there and I was, I used to run people off of it. I mean, I wasn't a great pool player, but I was okay because, you know, I played at the boys and girls club as a kid, you know, I could, I could uh, take <laughs> numbers, you know, I could run the table every once in a while. And I tell people to this day, Lloyd Daniels is the best pool player I've ever witnessed in person. I mean, he was like, he was like Fats Domino out there. <laughs> or Minnesota Fats, whatever the guy is. Yeah, yeah, Minnesota no, Fats not, out there. He was, he was calling shots, like spinning balls off the side and in the side pocket, I, like throwing trick shots. And I was like, what in the hell is going on? And Lloyd told me, you know, that's all I did when I was a kid. I played ball and I played pool. And he, he was absolutely remarkable. He came in there. And he was taking names. I mean, he spanked me really good that night. How much money shocked. did he take? He didn't <laughs> take any money. I wasn't foolish enough after that. After the first couple of times I saw Lloyd with the cue stick, I was like, hey, this dude, he, he's something else. Yeah. I didn't seem to like to him. <laughs> when, 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 you, when you guys ended up with, with Pop, was we all know Pop now, but was everybody on board with Pop at the beginning? No. No, because not everybody knew Pop. You know, I knew Pop from uh, my rookie year when uh, Pop and I were on uh, on a caravan together. The Spurs sent us out uh, to all these little small towns in South Texas. We went to you know all these little towns to drum up uh, fan support, and we were on this little uh, hotel shuttle bus, and we went out for eight days 
and we were staying in small hotels. We were doing park, uh, clinics in the parking lot of HEBs in the hot sun uh, with the coyote. And so Pop and I, you know, kind of uh, got to know each other well before I even played for the Spurs, you know, when I was just uh, a rookie and hadn't even had my first practice. So I knew Pop. I knew him when he was the second assistant and, you know, he was, you know, no one in, knew who he was at all. And so when he took over and he fired Bob Hill, the, the day we were in Phoenix, he came on the bus and he said, uh, I let Bob go. I'm the coach now. Let's go to practice. And when he said that on the bus and he, he sat on the front of the bus, we started, the bus started moving. Guys were looking around at each other like, uh, wait a minute, is he, is he joking or is he serious? And he was serious. I knew he was serious, but he has a way of doing that, the way he delivers things sometimes. And you just don't know. It keeps you off balance. And so when he kind of made that little, uh, gave us that little talk and we set off to the arena, guys didn't know what to think. And they still didn't know what to think for a while because, you know, his style was completely different uh, than Bob's. He was a lot more demanding on the defensive end of the floor. Uh, you know, he was a lot more vocal and, and uh, he was, he was intense and he was tough, you know, he's uh, an air force guy and he, he wasn't going to take any crap. So, um, yeah, I knew that. I knew that about pop. A lot of guys didn't. Wait. So, so he tells you that he fired Bob Hill. When was the next time you spoke or saw Bob Hill after that? Oh, uh, wow. I can't, I, I saw Bob last uh, season in LA. Well, I mean, that's, that, I mean, I that's think... just so wild that he was your head coach and then pop comes on the bus and says, all right, he's fired. And then, you got you don't yeah, well, like, you, yeah, can't, like text, you can't text him at the time. No, no, it wasn't like that. We didn't have the smartphones right. and all that, you know. So yeah, yeah, I mean, I don't even know if I had Bob's phone number, so probably didn't. And so yeah, it was just one of those things. I mean, uh, he was gone overnight, and and Pop took over, and that was a you know, that was a tough season for us because then David, you know, a couple games later he got hurt, uh, um, off the bat. So you know, it was just. Uh, tough situation for us all right so so can we can we stay with that then on on that season adam is that all right yeah go for it all right i want i want to stay on that season so you get hurt then and david and david gets hurt and then you tank for tim duncan how does it how does it go day to day in the locker room and on the court when you're tanking for the number one pick how does it go uh day to day on the court yeah well, I, you know, I was, I had knee surgery. So uh, for me, I was, um, you know, catching practice every once in a while. I was mostly rehabbing. Uh, Dave, I feel like he was doing uh, basically the same thing. Uh, but I was going to every game, uh, just trying to uh, support the guys. And, and you know, the, the one thing that I did notice, and, and you know, I've, I've told people this uh, lots of times, is our guys were playing really hard. I mean, our guys played incredibly hard. Uh, Pop just, you know, brought out something in them, and they, they, we were getting after it on the defensive end of the floor. And I, and I think that's where he started to earn um, more of the team's respect because they could see what he was doing on that end of the floor was really paying off, and, and uh, it was the right way to go. And so uh, guys played hard for him. They, they did. And, you know, it, it also helped that he was the coach and the general manager. <laughs> you know, that, that, didn't hurt, that didn't hurt him at all. Uh, but you could see that um, our guys are really, uh, you know, you talk about tanking. Yeah. And you see teams that are, that are tanking. They don't play hard. Our, our guys are playing hard. Uh, we just didn't have enough talent to get it done. When, when you talk about pop specifically, 
the the dinners between the coach and and the guys he takes out to dinner are, are just yeah. infamous. So yeah. take it take us through what what is a what is a typical Greg Popovich dinner look like? What is served? What's the conversation like? Well, you, you have to come with a, uh, an empty stomach, and a, maybe another leg will help. Uh, half the time, because Pop, he like he likes to eat. He likes to taste things. He likes to eat. Uh, he likes to. He's curious. You know, he wants to try things, and uh, he's got a great uh, taste in wine for sure. I mean, uh, you know, he's he's taught me definitely taught me a lot about uh, the wine world and, and the food world too. I mean, the the first time I tried octopus. Uh, really good octopuses with pop at some Italian restaurant where they were baby, little baby octopus and pasta, and it just absolutely blew my mind. You know, and now I eat octopus whenever I get a chance if you, if you get it done right. So, uh, but I, you know, it, it's uh, it's at least two or three courses. You know, if, if it's if it's a coach's dinner, it's going to be three or four courses. I, I've seen uh, I've seen pop uh, for dessert actually order an entree. Uh, I've, uh, you know, like if he really likes something like a lobster gnocchi that we get in a, pl a place in Minnesota, there was another place that we got lobster gnocchi and he really, it was the first course of the appetizer and he liked it. He'd order for dessert as well, you know, after an entire meal. And one thing I, I tell you what, we, I've been at a lot of coaches dinner, a lot of team dinners after. And one, one thing that a lot of people that are new to that whole scene say is when they walk away, they go, where does he put it? They, they don't know. <laughs> they don't know where he can eat, all, where he puts all that food, and he can drink some wine too. And he can put it down, and the next day he, he's going along, he's trucking along like uh, he, he had maybe a, a sip of wine at night and, and maybe a, a light meal. I mean, the guy, you know, he's he's got something. It's like maybe that spy mode that, that he was in when he was in Air Force Academy. He, he, he PJ, just, you know, PJ Carlissimo is the is the same way. He, uh, so what do you guys talk about at these dinners? Well, they'll talk, they'll talk strategy lots of times. Uh, they'll talk about what they want to do with certain players or, uh, things around the league. But, you know, then you'll, you know, you know, a few times you'll have pop, you know, he wants to talk about, uh, the state of affairs, what's going on in the country, what's going on around in the world, you know, and, and, uh, or he'll share, uh, you know, crazy stories. I mean, I heard a lot of crazy stories that I can't dare, uh, repeat. Uh, but he's, uh, you know, he he's more than just basketball. That's the that's the biggest thing, and and I think that's why the players and the coaches appreciate him so much as well. It's not always basketball. You know, he'll put it in, he'll put things into context and say hey, life is more important, this is more important, you know, that kind of thing. So it's there. Yes, there's a lot of basketball talk going on, but if it gets to be too much basketball, he'll he'll change the subject. All right, since he he knows so much about wine and he's taught you so much. How do you how do you talk about wine without sounding arrogant? <laughs> you you don't have to talk about wine to, to I mean to you don't have to be arrogant to talk about wine. I mean, well, no, no, that's the thing though. Uh, but I, I hear like yeah. I, I, I guy I appreciate when someone talks about wine and doesn't make it seem like well you're you're dumb for not knowing this. So so yeah, how did exactly, how did, yeah, how did no, Pop I, teach you that? No, I, I totally I totally get that. I mean because well I mean for me I'm a big uh, wino too now and i i read and you know that's what i do half the time i'm on the internet reading about wine and uh you know you chase you, you once you get into wine it's a whole different thing and if you know somebody who collects they'll tell you the same thing it's kind of a transcendent 
thing wine is and and so uh you know you don't have to be some guy who holds the glass by the bottom of the stem and swirl it around and oh i got notions of this and that you know coming out of your glass you don't have to be that you don't have to be that way uh you you drink what you enjoy and you, you learn about it and uh you know the the you you can go to tastings and 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 have guys tell you about certain things and figure out what you like and uh you know i i try not to be a wine snob but if somebody asks me about wine and and they want to talk about it i'm i'm there mm-hmm. to do that for sure so what's the what's the time and maybe it was at one of these dinners that uh that tim duncan made you laugh the hardest uh, timmy makes me laugh all the time he's he's a crack up he, he's a crack up but he he's he's always texting me during the games, and that and that's probably the, the 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 time to gets me to laugh the most because I'm always cracking on his age, always. And so you know I, I figure out a, a way during the telecast to crack a, a Tim Duncan joke. And I, like I said one last year, uh, a guy asked me who were my idols growing up, and I said, well I had three posters on my wall as a kid, and this is the truth. I had George Gervin sitting in the Iceman chair. I had Dr. J, and I had Tim Duncan. And all <laughs> <laughs> oh, my producers and uh, Bill Land, they went crazy. And then Tim texted me, he goes, how in the hell do you get away with old jokes on me, man? You're older than me, and you still get away with it. And I'm like, yeah, because I'm funny. And, you're not. and I text him something back like that. And so uh, we, have, we have a good time with him, but I'm always busting him on his age because he played so long. And... Uh, you know, I grew up watching Kareem and Robert Parrish and those guys, and they played forever. Uh, and, and it just, it was fun to watch Timmy play for so long, but dang, man, I, every time I get a chance, I, I give him a little crap. What, is, what does Duncan think about about uh, the guys right now in today's era and the post players? Does he give some, what kind of critiques does he offer up? Uh, he, he gives the same critiques that all the old guys do. I mean, we're all bitter. We're all old and bitter, and the game is, <laughs> The game is, and that's redundant, by the way, old and bitter. But yes. We're, we're just, you know, the, the game has changed so much. It really has. I mean, we, we definitely appreciate the athleticism. Uh, we appreciate that guys are athletic and, and, you know, guys are working on their craft. But it sometimes, you know, from an older guy's standpoint, it's frustrating to watch a game uh, because you see a lot of guys that don't really know how to play. And they don't they don't have the know how to get things done, and and it, it's uh, you know it's not just me it's a lot of the old guys uh, you know before every game I talk to the other announcer I talk to uh, the other broadcaster I talk to assistant coaches guys I played with or played against and the consensus is pretty much the same you, you just have a lot of young guys that come in and they don't really know how to play the game a, a lot of the strategy. And stuff that became was second nature for us has kind of gone out the window. I mean, you, I, I, how many times this year have I seen a high screen and roll, and a big guy gets a little guy switched on him, and he doesn't go straight to the low block. He gravitates out and wants to shoot a three ball, fours and fives. You're shooting a three ball with a with a guy that's a foot shorter on you. I mean, that is like a head scratcher. And so he he comments on stuff like that all the time too. He's like, these guys, these guys, you know, especially he gets frustrated. And he watches the game like I do, kind of old school. Uh, but I have a platform to kind of express my frustration. He doesn't. And so, um, yeah, he'll, he'll text me sometimes during the game and say, did you see that play? That was, do you see the traveling? 
you know, my goodness, I'm trying to be diplomatic about a guy taking a step back, you know, taking three or four steps. I go, oh, it might be a travel. And Tim's like, are you, you know, blanking, kidding me? That's not a travel. Of course that's a travel. You know, he'll send me a text. So he, he gets frustrated like I do. Well, tell him we'll give him a platform. He can jump on this podcast anytime. We'll talk to him. <laughs> he's, he's dying to get it out. The, yeah. uh, one, of your other, uh, one of your other classic teammates, Avery Johnson, also now a, a coach. Um, what was it like every day hearing that voice in practice? And do the impression, too. You got to do an yeah, impression. You gotta do the impression. I got I to have a few drinks in me before I start doing Avery. <laughs> I, you know what? I tell you what, a, uh, Avery um, was to, still to this day, he's the most intense basketball player I've ever uh, been on a team with. And he he's so intense that, uh, you know, like when I see him coaching, I, I think it takes um, people that are mentally tough uh, to play for Avery Johnson. If you're mentally weak or you're mentally soft, uh, you can't be around Avery. Um, you know, Avery, uh, there's a night in Seattle where he, I mean, he jumped in me and, and he, now Avery would jump on everybody. Avery would bark at David. He'd come to the locker room and he not bark at him. He would undress people. He would go out, he would go after him, but it was that same intensity that made him so good and made him succeed because he was relentless in his approach to the game and the way he practiced. Yeah, he just had a ton of heart. Um, I mean, he just had a ton of heart, a lot of grit, a lot of determination. And, you know, there were a couple of nights, and one night in Seattle, I mean, he jumped on me uh, for not taking a shot. And, you know, we had words on the bench, but I came out, you know, the second half and hit four or five threes in the next quarter. And, you know, a lot of that was because he, he spurred me on. And at the time, I was like, I was pissed at him. Like, after the game, I was still kind of pissed. Like, I don't want to talk to him. But... Mm. I, I realized later on that had he not gotten on me like that, my game, the result of that game would have been entirely different. And so I appreciate a guy like that. And uh, I still, you know, I'm still around Avery and I still see him. As a matter of fact, like three or four years ago, he came to dinner at my house. I want to say four or five years ago, he came to dinner at my house and it was only me, Avery and my wife. And when, when uh, he left, my wife, Claudia said, that is the most intense person I've ever been around. And I said, yeah. <laughs> and I said, yeah, yeah, he was, he was intense. He's intense in everything he does. He's got a lot of passion, a lot of drive. Uh, but you know, he'd come in with that voice and you, you'd hear it and you'd be like, Oh Lord, you better, you better be ready to lace him up today. Oh, that's incredible. So another guy that was your point guard, but went on to coach, but, um, people don't think about him as being the most intense guy ever. Steve Kerr. Um, yeah. What did you see from Steve Kerr back in the day that maybe people don't don't see now? Uh, Steve is crazy competitive, mm. he's crazy competitive. Yeah, and he he's got a well, you know love for the game, and he's intense too. Now, you know, I, I saw intensity from him, and then when I saw him as a coach, I was like, wait a minute, like he even took it to another level, breaking clipboards and stuff like that. <laughs> uh, you know, but Steve in uh, my later years and Steve's later years. Uh, when he wasn't playing a lot, he was scrimmaging with the the young guys. You know, when you don't play, you gotta you gotta get some two on twos and some three on threes in, stuff like that. Uh, the the young guys called Steve White Jordan because they could not guard him. He, his <laughs> jumper was so good, his jumper was so good, and he could get it off in a hurry that 
it made him almost unguardable on these two on two and three on threes because as soon as he got a crack of daylight, the ball was going up and he knew it was good. So he would just confound the young, the younger guys and the, the younger guys who were rookies, second year players, you know, guys that are right there on the fringe and they got to uh, stay fresh and keep working out. He would abuse them, uh, give them ball fakes. They, they couldn't help but bite on it and jump one dribble. He was dropping them off and it was, it was fun to watch. It was fun to, to be a part of that and see, uh, Steve going to work, but uh, Steve was a much better ball player than people give him credit for. And and I, and I got to tell you, you know, he he worked himself into that situation because I, I remember at Arizona we we had study table every night from seven to nine, and then we had open gym from nine until whenever uh, you wanted to, whenever you wanted to pack it up. And so every night when we came out of study table at nine o'clock you hear the ball bouncing in the gym. Study table was in McHale Center. So you'd hear the ball bouncing in the gym, and you'd see Steve in there practicing with Coach Thompson, and they'd be working on his jump shot. I mean, religiously, every night, this guy. And, and this is a guy who was offered a scholarship at the last minute. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, became one of the best three-point shooters in the history of the game. So that was just, just a testament to his hard work. Studying at Arizona. Yeah, that, I guess, yeah, that happened in the 80s, I guess. Um, another, uh, another, another Arizona guy, Andre Iguodala. So he, he yeah. hits a shot, hits a shot this week in, in game two. He had, uh, he had 17 seconds to get it off and he had about 17 yards of distance between him and, and a defender to make it. And the topic of a conversation has been this week. Well, Andre Iguodala is a hall of famer. Is Andre Iguodala a hall of famer, Sean? I don't know. You know, I don't know what a hall of famer is anymore. Well, okay, all right, but I know there's the. Right, no, so there's I, the there's, I mean, there, there, there's a difference well, I, between I, should and will. But in in your vision yeah. of what the Hall of Fame should be, is he a Hall of Famer? Well, you know, I've seen other guys go in there, um, in the Hall that maybe haven't accomplished as much as he has, and so, uh, you know, maybe he's not going to be a guy who's going to be there right off the bat. But maybe you know, a few years down the line, when his uh, career is reexamined. Uh, he had the chance to get in there because uh, we all forget that he was a, an all-star in Philadelphia and he was a, a franchise-type player there. Maybe not a complete franchise player, but he was a franchise-type player uh, in Philadelphia um, years ago. And, and Denver, as a matter of fact, he was in Denver for a second, I believe. And so, mm-hmm. uh, you know, he the thing I like about Iggy is he defends and he does everything you ask him to do uh, to win ball games. And, and lots of times, you know, guys like that get overlooked because they don't have gaudy numbers. Their stats aren't, you know, you know, eye popping. But uh, he does the little things. And, and uh, without Andre, you could argue that uh, maybe the Warriors don't have one of those championships. And that, and that, you know, a guy who helps you win a championship and is that instrumental, a Finals MVP, definitely deserves consideration. Arizona guys always sticking up for Arizona guys. Um, <laughs> a, few, a, few, a few more for you, Sean. Aside from broadcasting the Spurs games, what's been your focus in the San Antonio community? Uh, I've done a lot of, you know, I've done a lot of charity work over the years, and you know, right now my wife and I are aligned with Methodist Hospital, and we're just uh, kind of starting campaigns to uh, uh, try to. Uh, talk about health and awareness and preventative uh, health and, and just trying to uh, get our community in better shape. Uh, my wife is a registered dietitian. Uh, you know, she 
has a website. She comes up with lots of recipes and she, you know, she's the one that keeps me healthy. And she's the one, you know, after I had my transplant who really helped me change my diet and, and start a healthier lifestyle. And so uh, we're trying to get that message out to the community right now in San Antonio, um, just healthy living, uh, exercise, uh, taking care of yourself because maybe you guys don't know, but San Antonio hasn't, you know, we haven't been the example for a healthy living for a long time. I mean, it's, it's tough here. You, you get a lot of uh, great Mexican food. Uh, you, you get a lot of burgers. Um, there's not a lot of places to walk or exercise. And so, you know, we have an, uh, an obesity uh, crisis here. And we're, I think we're two times the national average in diabetes in San Antonio too. So uh, we've got some work to do, but we're, we're trying to at least get some information and the message out there that you can still, you know, eat well and have a good, uh, happy lifestyle and you can, you can be healthy. And, and so that's a tough message to get out, but we're working on it. Yeah, well, well, Charles Barkley made sure to try to get that message out over yeah, the past yeah, few years. Yeah, he did. Yeah, he did. He did. What? Uh, saw... <laughs> yeah, go ahead. No, 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 please. No, I, I saw Charles. I saw Charles in Atlanta, and, and uh, I think he's uh, he's been working on himself as well, trying to get himself back and healthy again. Uh, because you know, we well, four or five years ago, we lost a bunch of guys in the league uh, one summer. I think we lost like mm -hmm. six or seven guys, and so. You know, I'm always concerned about former players when I see that they're not doing well or they're out of shape. I try to say something to guys or uh, try to be an example. And uh, I think Charles is – I think he's definitely trying to get himself back um, after uh, a few setbacks. So I'm proud of him for doing that. What's the website? Oh, it's ClaudiaSapata.com. Can you spell Claudia, it? Claudia, just how you spell it. Yeah, C-L-A-U-D-I-A. And her last name is Zapata, Z-A-P-A-T-A dot com. Better make sure our listeners go check it out. That's right. Yeah, man, That's I right. She, she, we eat a lot of, listen, I, I, she used to tell me, uh, I'd say, what are we having for dinner tonight? And she'd be like, oh, we're having a vegetarian meal. And I'd be like, what? You know, <laughs> I always throw a fit. I'd be like, come on, you know, because people think it's all lettuce and tomatoes and celery sticks, you know, that kind of thing. And she would come up with this red lentil, a curry dish that she has and i would be like whoa i mean i eat so much of it i almost get sick or her butternut squash tacos you know i tell people that all the time they're like what you know there's people are closed-minded they're like you know butternut squash tacos is still the best tacos that i eat whenever she makes those i, I can't even be i can't be more excited i mean I it's eat funny, so much it's of funny my... you say that it's funny you say it because my, my wife right before we started this sent me uh -huh. a recipe um, and, and I do a lot of cooking. She sent me the recipe for these uh, lentil cauliflower tacos for dinner tonight. Yeah, yeah. There you go. That's that. That's that's. I mean, phew. that's what we do here. <laughs> I do stuff like that all the time, man. All the time. I'm gonna have lobster gnocchi for dessert, but that's besides. The <laughs> <laughs> hey, we didn't mention we didn't mention the double dinners, by the way. I didn't even get to that. I mean, you you want to talk about eating? How about going to dinner? eating four or five courses, drinking wine, getting in the car, going someplace and doing it all over again like you oh. hadn't eaten before. Oh, my goodness. Oh. Well, we're up for it any time. Yeah, that's yeah. why when I get home, I got to eat right. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Sean, uh, really appreciate your time. But we, for for all our guests on, on the Catch and Shoot podcast, because this is Catch and Shoot, we always ask a Catch and Shoot question, and there is no one um, – who understands that uh, better than you, of course, 
shooter behind the Memorial Day miracle. Um, congratulations. Yeah. Just had your 20 year anniversary of that shot. Yeah. 99 yeah. Western Conference Finals, May 31st uh, yeah. against the Blazers. Um, so, Sean, all time, one guy that you can pick, catch and shoot, down one, game on the line, um, game seven. You know, we'll say your life is on the line. Who are you picking okay. to shoot in that situation? Well, well that, 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 that's a hard one because uh, we used to play this game on the bus with the players. And we had to come up finally with a rule. Uh, we'd ask hypothetical questions, and the answer was always Michael. Always Michael Jordan. <laughs> you, could, you could ask any question. Hey, Reggie Miller's uh, going, he's hot. You got to put a guy on him. Who do you put on him? Michael. You know, you, get, you got the last shot of the game. Hey, there's a game in your life. Who, who are you, who's your first pick? Michael, Michael. So we had to finally say that uh, Mike, you can no longer pick Michael Jordan because he's the answer to every question. <laughs> and, we might have to adopt so, this. Yeah, so if I, if I was not picking Michael, because Michael is obviously my first answer, my second answer would be Larry Bird. If, mm. if, I, had, if I had a guy that the game was on the line, and the, or it was a shot to save my life. I'm picking. If I can't pick Michael, I'm picking Larry. Steve Kerr would like to have a few words with you. I think. <laughs> so, so so would Andre Iguodala. <laughs> yeah. I don't think anybody can disagree with Larry. I, I don't know how you could disagree with Larry Bird. I, I love my Arizona guys. Good grief, Larry was a he was a monster. Yeah, he was. Uh, yeah, he was. Yeah. All right, so you can watch Sean during the season on the Spurs TV broadcast, and when he's laughing, it's usually because. Tim Duncan is cinema. What are you talking that's about, right. man? Type text. I'm laughing at his expense. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> so we really do appreciate it. Thanks so much. All right, fellas. Appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you, Sean. I think we're about to go off the rails. Sean was great. And I bet some of those dinners went off the rails. And yeah, yeah, he couldn't tell every story, but he told some great ones. Let's go off the rails here. It was your birthday this past week. Mm-hmm. And... So I texted you in the morning, wish you a happy birthday. I appreciated I was, that. I was hoping I was hoping that Kate would be filling out your birthday card in the bathroom the same way you were filling out <laughs> her Mother's Day card in the bathroom. Did did she in fact do that? Uh no, no. She had a whole thing planned. I there was uh she set me up with a, a masseuse. I went got a massage. Um she she had it all well thought out, you know, special breakfast made up of lucky charms but she knows i'm like wait, a wait, wait, kid. lucky charms well it was like more of a joke she knows like i'm like a little kid so i've never had know, lucky she... charms oh it's pretty good it's pretty good it's uh yeah i just had to keep my two-year-old son away so my wife will allow me to eat the lucky charms but he's not allowed to eat it so um what, yeah. what do you what do you make of okay so you get a lot of, you get a lot of birthday messages now mm-hmm. are they like rank rank these in in terms of <laughs> Like most meaningful to nice to hear from you. So a phone, a FaceTime, you know, that's more like, you know, family for sure. Sure. A phone call, probably still family. A text, a, a private message, whether it's like a Twitter DM, a Facebook message, um, and then uh, the Facebook wall. And then the once you thank everybody for the birthday messages on Facebook, then you get the Hey, happy belated birthday. So, yes. Did, did, did I nail the order? I, I think that's pretty much the order. Although I will have to say, I do appreciate um, 
when someone goes the extra mile on a Facebook post like that stands out. Maybe they don't have my number. Maybe, you know, I told you a while back, one of our biggest fans is Trisha from, from the pizza place that I love. Yeah, yeah, right, right. Uh-huh. And, uh, and Trisha is an avid listener to this, to this podcast. So she wrote me a post on, on the Facebook wall said, happy birthday. And then she said, you may want to take a moment to thank your producers with a uh-huh. little winky face. Cheers and love. Right, right. And That's thought, a little different than like hope all is well. Yeah. How about the HBD? That's uh, enough for that's become a, a new Nonsense. one. But I, but it's it is a weird distinction as to like if someone has your number, like are they going the extra mile by sending you a text as opposed to just uh, sending you something on the wall? And I do appreciate Scott Turkin and Bruce Bernstein. Our producers did thank us. Uh, well, thank me. I'm sorry. As I always thank them. They they sent me. Sorry. Let me rephrase all this. They sent me happy birthday messages on my Facebook wall, and I did appreciate it, so I will say that. Eric, does that count as your thanking of the producers for this week, or are we going to do this again? I think we're covered. All I right, think we're good. covered. Um, something we want to start closing the show with is something else that is entertaining us this week, aside from basketball. So what do you have? Uh, for me, it was um... – Howard Stern's appearance on Conan O'Brien's Needs a Friend podcast. Long listen, detailed interview. Howard Stern's doing a whole book tour for his, you know, promotional stuff for his new book. And uh, the the interview really got deep into psychological issues they have. And and Scott Turkin first had told me that that was uh, available, our producer. So I probably have to thank him once again. The thanks are just coming. I know. I know it gets a little, a uh, little gross, but but I'm thanking you, Scott, for for recommending it. Uh, but a great listen. I think people should listen, especially if you're listening to our podcast. You probably like interviews and interviews that have gone on too long. You'll appreciate that one. How about for you? I, I actually did listen to that too, and it was good. I, I this week, this week I watched. Uh, I've been at CBS Sports HQ a lot. It's their uh, CBSSports.com on their their live programming and. So I'm there late at night, and so I've been watching just stuff on Netflix. Because if I start reading, I'm going to fall asleep, so I'm watching stuff on sure. Netflix. So I watched a, uh, a nice romantic comedy with uh, the comedian Ali Wong, and it's, oh, called, yeah. it's called Always Be My Maybe. And I'm a sucker for, for romantic comedies, and yeah, I, I cried at the very end, just at, just at the very end, and only once. And it had Keanu <laughs> Reeves in it, and he was awesome. Terrific. He's great. So... Yeah, so it's 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 a worthwhile watch. I don't know if it's a worthwhile watch like just on your own. Um, maybe you and Kate can watch it together. But uh, I, I laughed and and I cried at the end. I heard Randall Park is really good in that as well. He so is good. I'll yeah, have to check that out. He is good. All right. So you want you want to thank everybody again? Are we done? We're done. The Catch and Shoot podcast is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media. Some people just know bundling with Allstate means big savings. Just like they know the right ingredient means big flavor. They know honey on pizza is where it's at. And olive oil on ice cream is the cherry on top. And they know when you bundle home and auto with Allstate, you can save up to 25%. Mm -mm. Bundled savings vary by state and are not available in every state. Saving up to 25% is the countrywide average of the maximum available savings off the home policy. Allstate Vehicle and Property Insurance Company and Affiliates, Northbrook, Illinois.